Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 35 of AIR, an MTV podcast series with a different theme each episode. This month's episode is an ambient music special with one of the genre's contemporary luminaries and a personal favorite of mine, John Elliott, also known as Imaginary Softwoods. Although he'd be loath to describe his work as ambient, John's music as Imaginary Softwoods is celebrated for its deep, lush tones, beautiful synth work, pensive melodies, and thoughtful samples. Perhaps best known for his band Emeralds, which disbanded in 2012, John has been making music as Imaginary Softwoods since 2008, releasing several incredible works on tape and on vinyl over the years, while simultaneously managing the Editions Mago offshoot label Spectrum Spools. In this conversation, John and I discuss the ins and outs of making, playing, and releasing ambient music, and what the genre has to offer in 2021. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's my pleasure. So I'm going to start with something a little bit niche. Uh, I'm not sure if it's something that you noticed at the time, but several months ago, there was sort of this decently well-known producer who tweeted something like, to all the techno artists out there making ambient stuff at the moment, definitely add in bird sounds. Totally adds to the vibe, really subtle and rarely used technique. (laughs) Um, So I guess this is something that I initially sort of chuckled at um, as kind of harmless fun, but I suppose I'm wondering as a producer, are you at all concerned with what sounds are sort of cool or what sounds are cliche or what is, you know, what is unique or are you just truly staying the course and doing what you want or like? Uh, I've never thought about what anybody thinks about what I'm making and I don't care what they think about what I'm making because if you start to worry about how your music is going to be received by people, you're going to have a lot of problems with, I like I think uh, creative identity problems with how you're how you're going to make your music and just um, how you think. I I, I couldn't imagine uh, being tasked with uh, trying to please everybody at once in order to feel validated. That seems insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny you say that because uh, I remember when I did the album on my Spectrum Spools label, Donato Dazi plays B-Mask. Up until that time, I had never really received... Um, a lot of attention from the sort of European techno community. Mm-hmm. After that, it was like a tidal wave. <laughs> the amount of demos I was getting from techno producers that was terrible ambient music <laughs> was unprecedented. I, I was getting, I was getting so many, I was getting so many demos of of these really bad ambient albums by these guys that thought, like, hey, I could do that. I just take my drums out, right. And and then I'm good. It was horrible. <laughs> I guess I'm asking because I feel like with music production, there tends to be this focus on like what what is cool or what is innovative or what is different or, you know, what is cliche. Um, but I think what really matters is whether or not the music is good. So would you would you agree? Like, is that the bottom line for you both as a producer and also as a listener and somebody who runs a label? Like, is it just about whether or not the music is good? Absolutely. That's that's the only thing that matters. There's nothing else that matters. Has that been kind of a learning curve with you for you to kind of like stay the course in that way? Uh, no, because I feel like 
the only success I ever had was from doing what I do. I think if I tried to do other things, um, even when I go outside of what I normally do, which I like to do, I like to experiment. I had a project that I did with my friend Drew called Organic Dial that was more of like a like a down-tempo sort of like dub techno project. And like people don't react to that stuff the same way they react to the stuff that I normally do that I'm sort of hardwired to do. Mm-hmm. And so like I love to do those experiments, but I am also able to take away information about maybe what I'm good at. Well, I read a short piece that you did or that was written about you when you won the Cleveland Arts Prize. Oh, boy. And you were talking about how your interest in music started. <laughs> it started via your dad's vinyl collection, which contained like some records that weren't really popular at the time. And you were able to just kind of listen to them and make up your own mind and taste without sort of being influenced by what people said about them. Maybe you can talk a bit about about sort of learning about music like that. Um. Growing up, it was different for me because uh, I guess when I was old enough to, like, understand, I mean, I was still so young. I was probably uh, 10 or 11 years old. Um, So it was the 90s, and most people had CDs and tapes. Um, But my dad used to buy and sell used vinyl for extra money, Um, mostly, you know, like the Beatles, whatever, Jimi Hendrix and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But he would buy records in bulk. Um, and then I used to hang out in our basement and there was like a little stereo down there. And my dad used to keep all the records in these huge bins. So I would just listen to all the records. I would just, uh, I, liked, I liked looking at the covers a lot um, and seeing if it kind of matched the music. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took all his records basically the older I got, when I started getting into my late teens, early 20s, I just started like taking all his records because he wasn't doing anything with them anymore. And I started realizing that he had some pretty weird stuff. Uh, he had the first Noi album, uh, Tangerine Dream Records, mm. um, like underground, weird, sort of like post-punk stuff. I have no idea why he had it. Um, but yeah, I think I was I was pretty curious about music my whole life. And, and just like, just I have a ge- in general, I'm just very curious about things and very like inquisitive. Um, and I also, I'm also sort of like industrious. Like, I, I really, um, I'm really into like production. So I think there's like this, um, like, if there's like a bulk thing that I can learn about, like something in bulk, it, it, it like caters to both of these sort of things in me that I really like. Like, oh, there's a ton of stuff I can learn about here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's how. I started getting this, uh, I developed this habit of, of continuously trying to discover new music. Mm -hmm. And so do you think that that curiosity has sort of fed into what's helping you to make good music? I don't know if it's good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It definitely, it it definitely feeds, I would say maybe it feeds into, um, I'm very in tune with what I like to listen to and what I hope to like um, get out of my own creative uh, endeavors. Like there's this part of me that like will listen to something that I really like and it's very specific or there's like these two or three records that I'm very influenced by. And then I always have to think like, okay, well, I like those things, but how am I going to be able to fuse it with what I naturally do, mm-hmm. because if I take out what I naturally do, then it's not going to work. And that's the hardest part for me because like I could listen to some record. Um, last night I was listening to Inland by Tetsu Inoue. I, I was just sitting there very carefully listening to this record. And I was just like, oh, like uh, there's just sort of like these like very slow white noise washes. It's very simple. But I was thinking to myself, if I did this, I would hate it. 
but this guy did this, and I, 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 I think it's so brilliant. Yeah, you know, so you have to, you, you have to work with, with yourself. Like you have to be almost forgiving to yourself, but also you have to almost kind of align with what you, you're normally wired to do, mm-hmm. or at least that's how I am. Mm-hmm. And so, in terms of like doing what you're normally wired to do, like I wonder. Okay, so for example, like synthesizers are quite popular in this genre of like ambient music, if we're going to call it that. Um, for sure. But I wonder if it's maybe, <laughs> if it maybe makes it more difficult or challenging to create something that sort of stands on its own or is unique or step out of your comfort zone if you're kind of using the same equipment or the same uh, techniques or something every time you make music. Um, I think it's good to change it up. I think uh, you're tools will definitely open doors for you. Um, I was like pretty poor through all of my twenties and I had a Korg MS 10 was my first synth. I used it the entire time I was in Emeralds, uh, when, when that band was going and I was my most creative and my most productive when I had a one oscillator synthesizer with like five guitar pedals. Now, because I'm a little bit older, I manage my money better. I have a job that (laughs) produces more money. I have better equipment and all of the means to make the best music in theory that I could ever make. And I'll just sit in that room like stumped. So I I don't necessarily think it's about, about how much you have... Or like um, what you're using at all. I think it's about how you work with what you have. And I think if you if you don't have an idea, then then it doesn't matter what gear you have. Right. And so, would you say that you're stepping out of your comfort zone these days with your productions as, as imaginary softwoods? Like you've been making music under this moniker for quite a long time, and you have you know a huge discography on Bandcamp. So I'm just wondering, like, is is that still? Are you still stepping out of your comfort zone with with this project? Yes, I always am. Like for instance, um, the annual Flowers and Color album. I started working on that record in 2011, and I don't really, I didn't really consider it finished until I put out the vinyl release last year. So I worked on that album for like a decade. A lot of what I did on the album, when I was making the stuff, I thought I was, I had planned to never do something like that again, because I thought it was too scattered, I thought there was too much weird stuff going on, like there's tape, there's like a lot of tape junk, and just stuff that I wouldn't normally do, and so now, I'm starting to work on my next album, and it's much easier now, but I'm also deliberating about whether or not I'm doing something I've already done before or if I should try harder to do something I haven't done before or if it matters because I'm the only one that can tell. I guess it's kind of like if it if it's if it's not broke don't fix it sort of thing but also I don't know maybe it's good to try something new. I guess how do you like how do you decide? Yeah, how how have you decided what you're going to do? I think if you look at the big picture, anybody who keeps working on music over time, their music evolves even if it sounds like them like I think people inherently sound like themselves mm-hmm. um, no matter what if they're if they're making their music honestly I'm going to come back to annual flowers and colors but um, maybe we can just back up for a second and you can tell me a bit about how imaginary softwoods got started um, obviously you were involved in emeralds and a few other projects but how did your musical path sort of lead in this more mellow direction I wanted, well, first of all, I found this calendar that my mom had that was just like stuffed in some closet of parterre gardens. I have a really hard Midwestern (laughs) accent, so parterre, it's like the symmetrical sort of garden. Okay. (laughs) Um, So I, I, I really, I really liked the way they looked. And so I cut the calendars into squares and I had 12 of them. And uh, so I had 12 squares of these little gardens and I wanted to um, make each one of the gardens a track. And then I wanted to make them like a collection. And so I was thinking that 
they were going to be these sort of like mental safe spaces, mm-hmm. like <laughs> um, hence imaginary softwoods. Right. Um, I and I'm not joking. I do not like at the time. I don't even think we were aware of ambient music. Like we knew it was a thing, but uh-huh. ambient to me at that time would have been like like new age. Uh-huh. Um, like sort of sort of eighties, not what the word ambient means today. I, I I knew I wanted it to be different, and I knew I wanted it to be like um, long loops. I know I wanted it to be like a very repetitive sort of sati sort of like like these these short soft phrases. And it didn't turn out that way. If you listen to the first imaginary softwoods record, it's like a it's like a noise record. <laughs> um, and then it slowly tapered off into being like a softer, more reined in electronic music. Um, so that was the, that was when I finished all the tracks and had everything done, I, I realized that I had something new, something, some sort of new concept for a project. And, and I've tried to stay true to that concept the whole time. What was sort of drawing you to this more contemplative music? Like, was it I don't know, a reaction to other music that was maybe more noisy or more, I don't know, heavy that you kind of felt you needed a break from? Or, yeah, was it just like a natural interest? Uh, it was honestly just, I think it was a reaction to depression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was having really strong depression. Uh-huh. And I wanted to make something that I could like, tangibly look at i wanted to be able to physically examine this like problem i was having or this like sum of problems i was having this feeling that i was having and i wanted to um be able to like get it out and um have it sort of be like documented but also purged Mm -hmm. did you find that that process of making music was maybe more challenging or more interesting for you than with other sounds or styles that you were working with previously? Like, I feel like for some producers, approaching this kind of music can be quite tricky to make something that's actually interesting. Like, how was that for you? I think I, I think it was interesting for me. Um, <laughs> I felt like it was a successful capturing of what was happening. So if I feel like if I can, if, if it translates from what I'm feeling into music, then it's a success. When you mentioned that you were struggling with depression at the time, do you think that that translated into the music in some way? Oh, yeah. Have you heard the first record? I haven't actually listened to it, no. (laughs) It's twisted. Would you say that there can be a certain thrill in making this kind of ambient music despite its relative, like, calmness or tranquility? Sure. Anything can be anything. Like, I know that sounds really broad, but um, (laughs) some of the softest music can have really heavy implications, Mm -hmm. like, in the sound. The message that music can carry, like, especially music without words... Or, or this certain sort of traditional structure can move you in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. I think that's really incredible. And that's something I've always tried to uh, both like master and articulate with my own music. Mm-hmm. And so going back to annual flowers in color, um, I was reading a review of it um, where you talked about how it encompasses tape collage, spoken word, concrete structure and classic softwoods ambience. Um, So what does that mean exactly? Like I'm wondering specifically about tape collage, spoken word and concrete structure. Like what does that mean for you? Or what is that exactly? Um, Well, I, I come from a more experimental background of music. I don't come from like a traditional electronic or like techno or producer background at all. I come from more of an experimental music background. A lot of my processes are... A little more like a, they're just strange. I cut up pieces of tape and would record different things. And so much of the stuff I work on is um, 
it like it, it means something to me, which is really hard to convey to a potential listener in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Like uh, there's certain like sound events that happen that are very meaningful to me, but I'm not sure anybody will ever know what what they mean. Hmm. There's like a a piece of tape at the end of the last track on the album, the Imminent Collapse Department, where it's like a uh, it just sounds like a crowd of people getting kind of like sucked away. this tape loop getting sped up really fast mm-hmm. but I had a dream I always have dreams where I can't get a hold of my dad okay I, like I'm able to see him and talk to him but he's being like taken away mm-hmm. and so like that loop is sort of representative of this these dreams I have where I'm like trying to get a hold of my dad and he gets swept like who the hell is ever gonna know <laughs> And how do I make so and and how and how do I make how do I make that make sense in the context of an album, a musical album? Mm. So I would consider that process to be somewhat experimental. <laughs> um, with some of the other stuff, I had a friend of mine, Yuri. She did a spoken word segment on the second track. It was just sort of stepping out of the bounds of the things I had normally done to make albums. There's a lot of. Um, I thought that it was going to be good sound design, but the record sounds pretty bad, I think. <laughs> like it's pretty lo-fi. Um, but th- there's like a lot of there's a lot of uh, like hidden field recording stuff, and also on that last track, the imminent collapse department, if you listen really closely at the end of the track, you can hear an owl, and I waited for hours to record that owl. There's just stu- there's just stuff like that. So you initially released that on tape. I think if that's right. Um, was there any particular reason behind that? Like I also own it on vinyl and I really love the way it sounds on vinyl as well. So yeah, what was the thinking behind a tape release? From the scene I came from in the early 2000s or mid 2000s rather, there was a lot of tape trading and people would do multiple albums on cassette. And I feel like if I make a run of tapes and give them to my friends... Or just do like a sort of a low key batch of tapes. I don't I don't feel the pressure of making an album for a record label. So I'm able to fully do what I want to do and sort of get a feel for how people like it or what it's mm-hmm. gonna be like. Mm-hmm. Um if I if I make a tape and like I make the art and I have the track listing and I'm able to listen to it and stuff like that, um it's almost like a soft launch or like a soft release mm-hmm. for me. So to me, it's a really good uh, arena for testing. And I, and I really like with tapes, um, my personal style is I like to have a lot of different types of artwork. Mm-hmm. Like the original annual flowers in color, I think there was like 20 different cover variations. Something else I like to do on tapes is I like to have a lot more material like you could whittle it down because then like once you let it marinate for a while and you've listened to the release, you could be like, okay, it's good like it is. Or you could be like, ah, I might take this or this out um, and just sort of refine it. Mm-hmm. So for me, for me, it's more of like a, like a phase one of a release. Right. And so what, what did you change for the vinyl release? And was that like the, I don't know, hard launch I guess so. It's done. That's all I know. Um, I, I got rid of half of the tracks, <laughs> which was a good, which I think was a good move. And um, yeah, like I, I feel like I, I spent so much time working on that album, and then I put out the tape, and I sold a lot of them, maybe like two hundred, two hundred and fifty of them, and then. I just thought that I always wanted it to be a record and I didn't think it should be a double LP for some reason. I just didn't think that all of those tracks should be on vinyl, but I thought that some of them should. And so I was like, well, why don't I just reframe what I think the record is? And so I started paring it down 
And then once I got something that made sense, I was like, okay, you know, I could do this. And it seems really like potent and refined. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it worked. Mm -hmm. And so what about something like Gold Fiction Loop Garden? See, now that that was a tape as well. Uh-huh. And uh, Gold Fiction Loop Garden, I actually, I recorded that album in two days. Wow. And there's no overdubs. It was just like um, a session where I had this certain sort of uh, setup with my gear. And I was able to just do about 30 different like pieces. Mm-hmm. I'm really obsessed with... Uh, my music either being two minutes and 30 seconds or five minutes. <laughs> I was going to ask actually about um, having, having these kind of shorter tracks on that, on that record uh, as opposed to the super long sort of cinematic ones. What was the thinking behind that? So there's actually a reason why I do that with my tracks. I, I've always been in the habit of having these tracks that are Either there's a lot of movement and there's multiple parts, or I have tracks that are mostly static, just like a loop. Um, And I like combining them because when you have the tracks that are just sort of like a short loop, or I see them sort of as like a, just kind of like a landscape photograph. And so I feel like they serve as uh, good palette cleansers on an album. And, uh, I mean, I could just listen to only that type of music, or I wish I could just make music like that all the time sometimes, because I I, I really <laughs> like um, static stuff like that. Just very minimal sort of looping, meditative things that, that don't even necessarily change that much. They just repeat. I, I, I really like to have those tracks come, you know, before or after these tracks with a lot of movement because they, they serve as sort of like a, like a stopgap or like a, like a, like I said, a palate cleanser, mm-hmm. something to take you to the next bigger thing. So there's an interesting review of that album that says that you don't actually use any new techniques on that record that you sort of build off of a grounded sound. Uh, would you say that's true? Uh, I think there's a lot of new techniques, but maybe people can't notice it. I think maybe they're just saying my recording qual or that my production skills have not my production skills have not gotten better. Just <laughs> <is> true. <laughs> um, <laughs> I promise I'm going to hire someone to help me mix the next one. But yeah, I did a lot of things I normally I wouldn't do. But I I also move very glacially. I'm such a minimal person in general with music like like half the time when I'm working on music I'm sitting in my room listening to one sound for hours and then I just and then I just go to bed (laughs) um it's just how I am I mean not that there's anything wrong with not using a new technique like I was speaking a few years ago with Steffi and she told me that like even if it's not you know a new production technique for everyone else like for her it's new or it's pushing her own personal boundaries um so yeah i guess i'm just wondering if that sort of resonates with you like not necessarily doing something that everybody can tell is something really innovative but for you it's something that's uh challenging yourself yeah i i definitely want to try things that I haven't tried before in my music. That's really important. And I also, it's really important to make an album that doesn't sound like the last one. That That's, that's important. Um, I think inherently because of the way I operate, there's going to be some overlap between the past and the present just because my music is so like specifically defined by these like parameters I've sort of set for it. Yeah. So that, that is really important to me to, to do that. And to always be trying to discover some new way of getting there. And so you mentioned that um, you feel like your music is sort of defined by these parameters. Uh, do you like that? I think it is what it is. I I, um, <laughs> I feel like when I try to when I when I get too far away from it, it starts not sounding 
um, he doesn't feel like home, if that makes sense. It's it's a fine line between doing something that's like familiar enough or feels like it's the right thing. Um, like I've experimented a lot with rhythm in trying to put rhythm in my music, and I haven't found a way to do it yet that makes me happy. So I won't put anything out yet, but I hope someday that my music has rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> And so what about as a listener, what kind of things are you looking for in a quote-unquote ambient music listening experience? Um, well, first and foremost, I'm not ever looking for an ambient music experience. <laughs> um, I think that it just seems like everything is ambient right now. This is something I was thinking about when you had initially asked me to do the interview because like, when I, when I first started, when Emeralds were first starting to get some recognition, no one called us ambient. It just wasn't a thing then, it, which is so strange because it seems like the, you know, it, it fits the bill in some ways, but now everything's ambient. Like, uh, I was thinking like the Midori Takata record that came out recently, well, I guess semi-recently. Um, it was that reissue, uh, which to me sounds more like an experimental exotica like tribal album and then there's like um any of the japanese ambient records which a lot of them just sound like elevator music <laughs> or then you could take like uh like a techno dude who just has like a reverb pedal uh or you could take like uh some rock band like uh, Tame Impala, mm -hmm. like all of it's ambient. <laughs> so what is ambient? <laughs> so I get, I guess I'm looking for a unique experience more than I'm looking for an ambient experience. Right. We 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 need ways to organize music in the way that we define what we listen to. It's just human nature. But there's always this point where. It, it's getting out of hand. Like ambient is a very big thing right now. And it, it and so it, it just feels like a lot of people trying to get on an elevator or something like that to mm -hmm. define everything or tying it back to this thing. And like I said, it's very strange for me because I never considered myself to be an ambient producer. I never knew I was making ambient music mm -hmm. when I set out to do this. Like now I know, of course, but it, it, it's just uh, it's just so strange to me. Okay, so I guess I guess what I'm really asking is like um, the things that you're looking for in you know a unique listening experience are those also things that you are thinking about when you are making music as imaginary softwoods? Um, well, I think remember how I, I keep coming back to this concept of like music that you're hardwired to make. Mm. Um, I'm influenced by music. Of course, like I listen to a lot of music someone might consider ambient, but I also like love Thin Lizzy and mm -hmm. Black Sabbath and stuff like that. So um, I'm, I'm trying to like be as true to what my character, like what my inner creative spirit is trying to to push out. Um, so when, when I'm hearing an album by somebody 
and it feels like I'm looking at a, or listening to a self-portrait of somebody mm-hmm. or something like that. I feel I feel really um, I'm very struck by that. There's this Belgian artist, um, Eno Velthuis, mm-hmm. and he put out a bunch of cassettes that are pretty rare in the '80s. Um, I really hope somebody reissues those tapes as records someday. Mm-hmm. But his music over the last few years, I've been listening to a lot, and I'm I'm so moved by how like like yes, you could con- you would consider these to be like ambient tracks that he makes, but they're so the mood of this music is so unique and the production quality is not good. Um, The songs aren't particularly well organized, but the feeling is so strong. It's incredible. Like the, they're, they're incredible tracks. I could listen to uh, 50 ambient records and not get that feeling. Mm. But Every once in a while you hear something, and I think it's different for everybody, um, but every once in a while you hear something and you're just like, it, it, it just, it sounds so honest. The language that they're speaking is so well defined, even if it's not in a high fidelity or or even technically or musically well executed, mm. like the message is coming through. Mm-hmm. I love I love that. Um, talking about this kind of feeling that you get when you're listening to music, um, I don't know. Do you, when you're making music, do you feel that feeling? Oh yeah, there, there's there's a point where I know it's going down. <laughs> um, like you, you get to a point uh, when when you have something. There's just like there's some tracks where it's just like okay, that's that's one. Mm. And then there's some stuff that you have to sort of mash together and you're like, okay, this could be something. And then you get there. But there there are times when I'm working on something and I just get it and I'm like, yep. Hmm. What about as a, as a performer? Um, I've never been to like a listening session, but I love attending these sort of quote unquote ambient performances when it's a live set. So for you when you're performing as Imaginary Softwoods, what is that like? Is that a DJ set? Is that a live set? Um, yeah, maybe you can just tell me about that. It's a hybrid, and it's getting harder for me because personally, I don't really like to watch anything for more than 20 minutes. <laughs> and like, and it's, even if it's like my favorite thing, like if you give me 25 good minutes, like great minutes, I'll be so happy. But like the second it tips over 40 minutes, I'm just like, I'm just like, I want to leave no matter what, no matter what it is. It's just, it's just how I am. Um, but like when it's some dude standing on a stage with a fucking modular, it's just like. That's all anything is. So like like so many of the so many so many of the events I I have played recently, it, it's it's I don't want to get into the politics of it, but it, it's it's like now you have to have a visual. Mm. Like I personally like I would feel bad not having some sort of visual thing for somebody to look at because I'm just standing up there s- screwing around with some desktop synth. It's not fun to watch. It's not. Um, so I've, I've been trying to think more about ways to have an actual live performance. That's not just some dude standing there staring at a laptop. Mm. Like I've, I've thought about, um, staging scenes and having like live actors, (laughs) um, like have just some have just having having something happen that was like you know some sort of psychedelic experience. Um, I make Super Eight films, cool on my own time, and now my Super Eight work is starting to like inherently be tied to my musical work because now I have to think in terms of like if I have a live performance, what can I, what can I make for people to watch that'll be really interesting and stimulating. Mm. Um, 
So I work on a lot of Super 8 stuff with the thought that I'm going to be using that in the future for live sets if I ever do them again. <laughs> uh, I, I know that when you were in Emeralds, you were sort of a very active performer, like a lot of sort of dancing and headbanging and fist pumping. So yeah, is it strange for you to, to play sort of softer music? Like, can you still, I don't know, dance the way that you want to during one of your sets? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think those <laughs> days are over. Um, I think um, I've just changed as a person, for better or worse. <laughs> uh, and and I'm just I'm just on a I'm just doing something different. And I'm interested in doing live performance still, but it has to be different. Mm. Um, on my end, like I I have to do something that is more stimulating live than what I've been doing. And it's very difficult because, you know, no one wants to pay for that. <laughs> um, so we'll see. You know, if it, if it's just like some good, some good visual content, that's cool. But then it just seems like even now it's like an electronic dude with visuals. Mm-hmm. And so I really, I really want to figure out a way to do something different that's more engaging than what I've been doing and what I've been seeing from other people. Mm -hmm. What about in terms of the artist whose music you release? I was reading an essay you wrote for Impose magazine uh, about how you choose which artists to release on Spectrum Spools. And you were saying that you favor producers who are working hard and thinking outside of the normal realms of creativity. So does that mean that you're interested in artists, to go back to this quote that I read you at the beginning of our interview, does that mean that you're interested in artists who aren't using, you know, bird sounds or artists who are using bird sounds without caring what people think or, you know, people who are using bird sounds in a totally unique way? Um, I really was interested in putting out um, whoever was doing something that was their own language like something that was um like of course it could be electronic it could be ambient it could be considered techno whatever but as long as it was theirs and they were owning it that was Mm. something that um was really important to me and something else i really liked to do was i would like to put out something completely different than the last thing that was like the most important thing about doing spectrum spools was having a record come out and then making the next one be completely different. Like you mm-hmm. could have like a music concrete record followed by this like non-functional techno record followed by uh, like a pop album followed by like a reissue of some like a Robert Terman reissue. Um, I always wanted to keep people on their toes. Mm-hmm. And I wanted the the unifying, like I I want I wanted the the bond, like the umbrella of the record label to just hold in these artists that were all singular, mm-hmm. even if they were completely different from one another. Sure. And it was very challenging. Um, I feel like the label became very misunderstood after a while and it became harder to do because of that there's this kind of line where there was this record i did the donato dazi plays b mask album where it it sort of fused these two worlds that i was documenting which was sort of like um like uh outsider european electronic some of it was techno and United States underground experimental electronic and they literally collided on an album where it was Dazi pretty much playing these B-mask tracks through the Dazi lens. Um, so now I had these two audiences one was more of like a more rigid European techno crowd who 
were more looking for techno music. And then the experimental American underground, who it seemed like at the time, these two communities were not so much interacting with each other, even if they were aware of each other. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like after that, I had two different types of universes that I didn't necessarily want to like pander to, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was the next step after that? Like, how did you sort of rectify that situation that you had kind of unwittingly created? Uh, I kind of didn't. It just kind (laughs) of like, it it just kind of like slowly eroded, like, um, it became harder to because I felt like I was tasked with making from a creative standpoint, I felt tasked with making everything uh, make sense. So it became harder to find projects that made sense after that. Mm-hmm. Um, the second woman albums that I did, I think, were like the best I could do and like some of my favorite music ever made is on those two records. Um, So I feel so proud that it was still doable, but it, 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 it's extremely difficult to, Mm. to try and make it make sense now from a, from a, from like a, from, from the perspective of being like an experimental curator. And so in terms of this curation, maybe we can just sort of bring it back to this ambient genre. So in terms of your taste for that type of music, um, is there like, you know, the Venn diagram of what you like as a person over here and then the other side of it as a label owner over here? Or is that just like a circle? Like like any anything that you like as a listener, could that be released on on the label? Maybe not, but I have to like give credit to Peter Peter Rayberg who does Editions Mego because he had to put so much trust in me to be able to steer that ship, sometimes very unsuccessfully. Um, sometimes records just would not sell. Mm. Um, so he he gave me the keys to the car and just let me drive it. So, I mean, he really gets the credit because without Mm -hmm. him, nothing, none of this happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted it to be as much like that as it could be because at the time in the States, like everybody was trading cassettes and sometimes you would just get a cassette that was so good. And so much of what was happening here at the time felt like, um, it was not getting the attention it deserved. Like there was no platform for it. Mm. So I was able to have this platform and I was able to amplify these artists. You know, a bunch of the first Spectrum Spools releases were just reissues of cassettes that I was getting. So yeah, I wanted the label to feel like like you walk into my apartment and you're you're just like looking at the stack of tapes I have recently. Mm. Can you talk a bit about sort of what you, I mean, I guess it's pretty clear that you're not going out in search of ambient artists, but um, maybe you can tell me a bit about what you, what sort of ticks the boxes for you in terms of what you'll release uh, ambient music wise. I don't know anymore. Like I, I, I'm not sure that I'm going to do any more releases. Uh, I I don't know if I'm going to curate anymore. It, It feels difficult to do. Um, and it seems like everything's covered. I really liked um, the. Her name is Tomoko Savage. Mm-hmm. Um, she did this record on Shelter Press called Music Hydromantique. That record is incredible. Um, that type of music is something I'd be very interested in doing. I guess maybe a hybrid of something that's maybe not necessarily fully electronic. Um, there's just, there's so much, um, 
there's this whole like I call it like succulent ambient or like plant rock or something. Like there's this there's this whole like axis there's like this whole axis of people that just make like ambient music about plants, like based on that Plantasia record that came out. Mm-hmm. Some of it's really good. But I mean it it just seems like there's so many different departments of like these sort of sub ambient categories that it almost makes me not want to release anything like that at all Mm. because why add to the pile? Like it seems like it's getting taken care of. Something that I really love about Spectrum Spools is that you have music that's really coming from all over like places that seem to be a bit sort of removed from what we might normally think of as, you know, hot spots for electronic music, like Missouri or something like that. Um, Oh yeah. I think it's kind of, you know, breaking down this, (laughs) breaking down this notion that, um, the big city is the best place for making music or listening to music or experiencing music. Um, can you talk about that? I think, yeah, yeah. Um, that's really funny because I've never felt like when I go to these creative hotspots that they're like, uh, they actually make me feel inspired. Like I remember when Emerald started putting records out, people were like, you got to move to Brooklyn. And I was like, I went to Brooklyn and I was like, this sucks. Like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to work three jobs in the service industry. So all the rich kids serve, serving rich kids in the service, <laughs> in the service industry. So, th- so they can go work on art and I don't, <laughs> and then I'll never have time to work on mine. Mm. You know what I mean? It's it, it, like, and, and, and it's a sh- like, I don't want to be like, People of privilege have time to work on music more. People of privilege have an easier time sussing that stuff out, being able to, to like, you ever, like, sometimes you'll be backstage at some European festival and you'll be, like, in the green room with a bunch of artists and you'll just be like, so what do you guys do for a living? And they just kind of <laughs> look at you like, oh, boy, like, you know, like, like I work. I, I, I have a painting company that's, like, like I have to work and I have to jam in my free time. So, you know, I'm I'm not, I'm not saying that one is better than the other, but like of course people are making better shit in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. It's always been that way. Like uh I just think that I just feel like that's the way it is. If you're un, if you're uninfluenced by your surroundings, if you're on an island, it doesn't necessarily mean like people were finding ways to like access cool stuff, even in remote places. Uh, you know, there, there, there was still mail order in the eighties. People were doing <laughs> mail order tapes, underground tapes, stuff like that. Um, so, you know, you don't need to go there. I mean, of course, like in New York, there's a billion awesome art installations and concerts and, things like that happening every night. Of course, there's an advantage to that, like from a, from an artistic perspective. Um, of course you could schmooze with other people who have more money than you that might be able to give you an opportunity. But I never felt like that was going to be the thing that like moved the needle for me. And mm-hmm. and it definitely, when really, when releasing music, it, it didn't, it didn't matter where people were from. They just happened to be in vacuums and, those music sound, a lot of those records sound like they were made in a vacuum. That's just sure. how I like it. How then are you seeking out artists, or you know, digging for digging for new artists, or f- finding new music? Um, like, if somebody is at home listening to this episode and they are an ambient producer and they're wondering how to get how to find like the right home for their for the music, what would you say? That is a great question. Um, Absolutely great question because it's something I think about all the time. Things are so different right now. Um, I feel bad for everybody who's trying to make it out there because it is so hard. And um, I, one of the hardest realizations for me about Spectrum Spools was that I could barely do more than an artist could do for themselves. 
like, yes, I had a platform, Spectrum Spools. I was able to string enough releases together to have a reputation. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could sell more records than they could. Maybe they could put a little bit of money in their pocket. At the end of the day, I didn't feel like that was enough. So I wish I had an answer for that. But if you are making music inspired by a certain set of things and you are able to find other music out there that's happening now that you might feel is in the same ballpark, then I think you should try and contact those people and or whatever like record label it is, if it's a record label, <laughs> and um and just shop your music. And 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 it's so shopping a record, like I, I it, it's so hard for some people. And I understand because you just want this thing that you've worked really hard on to to, to come to life and have somebody advocate for it and get it out there and put something behind it. And so many times you don't even get a reply. I just, I just feel for people who, who work hard on music and, and, um, and try really hard to get somebody to do it. Now, that being said, if you've made something and you, and you know, it's awesome and you know, it's good, bet on yourself. Make a release, make a tape. If you can't afford to do a tape, put it on Bandcamp. Make some codes. Make a nice press sheet about what your record is and send it to everybody. And it's so hard to even get people to listen to music now. You can send them a code. You can send them a link where all they have to do is press the fucking play button and they won't listen to it. <laughs> you just have to You just have to, You have to. to stay on them and try and you have to work so hard to get feedback now. But if you can get one or two people who do have a platform to advocate for you, something could happen. Mm-hmm. If, you, if, you, if you've made something you think is great and you believe in it, then you should go for it, even if nobody else does. What about for you with Imaginary Softwoods? Like, do you see this project continuing to evolve in the way that it's done for these past years? Or do you envision an ending to it sometime soon? I don't know. It's funny because I was trying to make something last night and I have these really bad mood swings where if things aren't going well in the studio, I'm like, maybe that was my last record. (laughs) Um, I think that'll be my lifelong project. Mm. I'm so overwhelmed by trying to start a different project that I don't think I can at this point. So I think I'm stuck with it. Um. But yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to the evolution of it and seeing what I can do with it. I really I'm pretty happy with the with the rate of output. I like that um now with the Bandcamp subscription series and stuff like that, I could put out stuff I'm sketching in my studio and it can just be for the subscribers. Uh people who are really want to hear what I'm doing. Um I can put stuff up for them, but then when I want to do a proper album, um, it takes years. And so then there's a big difference between the two things. And I really like having those two different speeds. I love being able to like have some stuff that I'm just like working on this month and then have like a big all encompassing type of album I'm working on. So yeah, uh, I'm curious to see how my next album album turns out. You've been listening to John Elliott, a.k.a. Imaginary Softwoods for Air Podcast, episode 35. We'll be back on the last Wednesday of every month, so come back in August for another episode. 
In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at, at underscore airpodcast or visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash airpodcast to find out how you can support what we're doing. If you're enjoying air and want to hear more stories like this one, check out Bear Radio, Berlin's English-speaking podcast network. Air is produced in partnership with Bear Radio, which is also home to a number of other great shows like Mixtape Ménage, where host Elias interviews and plays music with artists and musicians from all over the world. Another favorite is Busy Being Black, hosted by Josh Rivers and exploring the work and life of Black artists, writers, curators, and tastemakers. There are currently 24 podcasts and hundreds of episodes available, so head to bearradio.org to listen. Thanks for tuning in and see you again in August. <laughs>